Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 323. My name is Camden Busey, and I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. We've got another great episode lined up for you and a fantastic guest, but let me introduce to you first our regular. As always, we have our good friend Jared Oliphant, who is the regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jared. It's good to have you. Thanks, Camden. Good to be with you. Yeah, we're really amped up today because we have a great guest. Uh, For the very first time, we're very pleased to welcome to the program Justin Taylor. He's a Ph.D. candidate at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Many of you will also know him as the Vice President of Book Publishing and an Associate Publisher at Crossway. And he also blogs at a very prominent blog, Between Two Worlds, which is hosted by the Gospel Coalition. Welcome to the program, Justin. It's great to have you on for the first time. Thanks. Great to be with you guys, and glad to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, We're delighted to be speaking about a very important book and a timely one, The Final Days of Jesus, The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. It's published by Crossway here, and uh, we're excited to speak about this book and to open it up just in time for uh, the Easter season. But before we get into this book, I do want to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Please visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate today to help us out. Uh, We are really encouraged by the number of uh, new donors we've received recently, but we would encourage you to join the bandwagon and help us out. Even $5 a month is a giant help. Uh, It helps us cover our costs and and to keep all of these resources free. We love volunteering and doing all this work, but we still have expenses and we need your help. So pray for us. And also, if you're able, visit us online today. We thank you so much for your support of everything that we do here at Reformed Forum in this particular program, Christ the Center. I guess we should begin by mentioning also that this book, is co-authored here uh, by our guest, Justin Taylor, but also Dr. Andreas J. Kistenberger, who is Senior Research Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Many of you will know him as a very excellent New Testament scholar and also the editor of, the, of JETS, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Justin, just as uh, we begin, can you um, speak a little bit about some of the -the behind-the-scenes aspects of this book and how it came to be, uh, and what were the initial conversations like when this idea was introduced? Sure. I think it really has its genesis uh, to a blog series that I did several years ago uh, on Easter week, on Holy Week, where I, I started by looking at the ESV Study Bible, which I worked on several years ago. Uh, and it had sort of a, a chart, a chronology of the, the final last few days of Jesus. I think it basically was Monday, Thursday through Easter Sunday, um, trying to put together, you know, where all the scripture passages were, sort of a handy guide. And so on my blog, I would do a post called What Happened on Monday, then the next day, What Happened on Tuesday, all the way up through Easter Sunday, and including all of the ESV Bible text, um, not, so not just the references, not just summaries, but the actual text itself, and got a number of encouraging uh, pieces of feedback from that. Some people would read through it on Holy Week and found it very meaningful and helpful. And so I did that for a couple of years on my blog, and then uh, someone suggested that I might want to consider turning it into a book. And so I, I knew that I wasn't competent enough to write the commentary myself. 
I mean, I, I could have done that, but it wouldn't be as good as it could be. So, <laughs> right. um, I ended up contrast, contacting Dr. Kostenberger uh, to see if he might have any interest in it. And we, we discussed it for several weeks and ended up finally uh, deciding to collaborate on the project together. So that's a little bit of a background of how it came together. And I did a lot of the, the framework and then he did a lot of the writing of the actual commentary um, together. On that, you know, you're you're working at Crossway. You're you're an author for Crossway. Can you talk a little bit about wearing both hats at the same time and and um, what you were thinking going into the to the project uh, regarding both, I guess, kind of your professional status and then your um, authorial status? Yeah, yeah. I kind of get myself into some strange situations. I mean, I, I have. <laughs> Not only uh, those two hats, but then the blogging hat as well. So sometimes it makes me right. a little bit of a strange employee, like blogging about books, authoring or editing books, publishing books. But right. I enjoy all the different uh, vocations and opportunities God's given. Yeah, so something like, I mean, it's a little bit strange when you're the, I guess when this came down the through the pipeline, I wasn't the publisher, but I was an associate publisher on the committee and um, yeah, everybody's very gracious and, you know, I, I enter into it saying, you know, just because I work here and you all know me doesn't mean there's any obligation to publish it. If you don't think it's a viable idea or a compelling idea, you can just pass on it. Um, so yeah, it, it gets a little strange, but I mean, it doesn't feel that awkward. Um, I, I love working at Crossway. I love writing for Crossway. Um, and I don't see writing books as a primary vocation. Um, you know, I, I edit a series with Steve Nichols and really enjoy doing that, but mm-hmm. I understand that publishing is my day job. And, you know, if I can do a few things on the side, that's, that's fun too. Mm-hmm. Now being involved day to day in publishing and also a very important publisher, we love so many, well, we love the work that Crossway does and you do a lot of it and it's excellent work. But being on the the business side of things, uh, and and also you know managing all the different books and seeing things from that perspective, has that given you a different perspective as an author? Because you have a, a different view, and you get to see what things are very helpful to the church more broadly. Did that inform uh, the writing of this particular book at all? Yeah, I'm sure that it did, and that even in ways that I'm sure I can't even identify, but just being around books all day long, thinking about books, thinking about what makes books work, what makes them not work. And that's one of the reasons I love Crossway is it is a ministry, and it is a business, and um, you know, we need to make books that are viable, but Crossway really is a mission-centered company, and there's a specific theological vision uh, about the centrality of the gospel and the glory of God and the edification of the church that really does drive everything. So uh, not every book needs to be a bestseller, and we know not every book can be a bestseller. Um, so that informs so much of what we do on the publishing side of things. And so as an author, I think there's just an appreciation that uh, you're working with a publisher that's not just going to print up your book, um, is not just going to market your book, but really can be seen as a partner in trying to spread the message. So, you know, like with this book in particular, Andreas and I have no illusions that it's going to hit the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> even, um, you know, it's too see, orthodox for that. I know that maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we know that's not 
that isn't this kind of book, though. Any author would be thrilled if that were to happen. But we really want to see people helped by uh, the message in the Gospels of Christ and and hope that it can be something edifying for them. So that's that's our heart behind it. That's our desire. That's our our prayer that the Lord would be pleased to use it in big ways or small ways, really whatever ways he wishes for the advancement of the kingdom and uh, the building up of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we want to get into more of the layout and the content of the book in a minute, but um, just still on this side of publishing, how similar was editing this book and contributing to it to the work that you did in editing the ESB Study Bible? Yeah, that's a good question. It's it's a different animal, really, because with the Study Bible, um, you know, that there were so many contributors to that. I think at the end of the day, when you add up all of the articles and all of the associate and contributing editors, that was nearly 100 people involved uh, from around the world. And so, you know, taking that, trying to put it into such a format that it had a similar voice and feel and level, um, so the uniformity of it, just a really a different animal altogether. For something like this, as a co-author, you have much more say. As an editor, you can try to shape things, but you're really dealing with somebody else's work, so you need to take that into account. With this, um, you know, there's some uh, benefits of being a, a primary author, a co-author, in that if you want to add an extra section or if you want to add maps and charts, of course, the publisher has to sign on to that, but... Um, it's fun that you can kind of let your imagination run wild and and try to include the things that you would think would be the most helpful for people. Now, um, as you're as you took a look at what um, Easter themed books are out there, uh, either in you know conservative Christianity, but even in in the broader spectrum, um, what either with your own uh, you know, personal reading or maybe even with research that you did um, for the book in terms of where this book fits in, um, what kind of gap did you notice that this book might fill, um, if any, and, and how does it relate to some of the other stuff that you've seen out there, either, like I said, in your personal reading or maybe in some of the research? Yeah, there are a lot of books out there related to Easter, related to Lent. And, you know, we hope that this book would be not just read in the springtime, but read throughout the year because, um, you know, it is the most important week of Christ's life and it's the most central event in the Christian life. Um, So we hope people read it any time of year, but we know that it's going to be primarily the interest will be in it for uh, Easter and Lent. And the, the books out there tend to fall into various categories. One category would be devotional books. Um, you know, they're, they're just trying to give you something that you can take with you throughout the day, something encouraging, something inspiring. Um, and then there are like books related to archaeological discoveries. You know, let's look at um, what we know about Jerusalem or what we know about first century tombs or burial practices or that sort of thing. And then there are apologetics books, um, like Lee Strobel's got a little case mm-hmm. uh, for Easter, which are very valuable, I think, just uh, you know, thinking through some of those things for, for unbelievers or for those who are doubting. Um, so we really didn't find anything, and I guess another category would be more liturgically oriented books, but we didn't really 
know of anything that quite did what our book is trying to do. And one of the gaps that I think that we're filling with this book is that there is commentary primarily drafted by Andreas and there's a framework and there's a glossary and, you know, all those extra elements. But the majority of the book is the ESV Bible text. So if you pick up the final days of Jesus, you will read everything in our book that actually is recorded in Holy Scripture about his final week, just arranged in chronological order and then also put in harmony format. So if you're reading Luke's account of the Lord's Supper and you're wondering what the other Gospels say about it, it's right there next to it so you don't have to flip back and forth. I think that's a unique thing that that we've done here. Obviously, there are gospel harmonies out there. But if you just want to concentrate on that final week, uh, Andreas is a wonderful, godly, brilliant New Testament scholar, but he's not inerrant. Uh, So he can be helpful as you read his commentary. But if you really want to know what exactly did happen that final week, by including every single word of from the four gospels about that final week of Jesus's life, you really do have an inerrant authoritative guide to that final week. So we, that, you know, like with the study Bible, we always told people, make sure that you understand that the most important thing in the study Bible is that little gray line that horizontally is divided. <laughs> right. What's above it is you can bank your life on what's below it. We think is helpful and we think is important, but could be fallible too. It is fallible. Um, so that was that's part of what we're trying to fill the gap here is to provide something that that contains the whole ESV text, and then something that adds these visual elements, that adds things like a glossary. So if you're reading along and you're wondering who is Salome, the the lady, uh, you know, and there's like four Marys. Which Mary is which? And <laughs> Um, who are we talking about and how many women actually were there and who were these women and uh, why do they call it Golgotha and other people call it Calvary and uh, how many disciples were there? All, all those sort of things. We've tried to just make it handy. So if you go there, you can see it kind of organized in a clear way. And then the final comment I'd make about the very good question is that you could also divide up a lot of the Easter books between books that are mainly designed for academics and the scholarly community and those mm-hmm. that are designed for the lay level for just your average person in the pew. And we're trying to sort of do something hybrid here where it's taking the best of scholarship, but um, putting it at an accessible level so that anybody can understand it and have access to it. So this isn't one of those books that's just loaded up with thousands of footnotes and technical language. Although a lot of that, is informing what we're trying to do in the actual book itself. Yeah, I think that's a, a very helpful context. And just personally, as a general comment, when I was reading through the book, um, and, and even backing up, I should say also, uh, we get a lot of books thrown at us from time to time. So it's not just automatic that we'll do you know an episode and talk to the author on, on any book. But as I was reading it, um, I was struck by what you just said, Justin, that it, it is very unique. And I, I really enjoy just the flow of the book because it's in chronological order. There's a certain um, continuity and almost narratival feel where you're kind of in the, the drama of the story in a way that I think is unique. So 
um, just as a personal testament, I really appreciated just the overall tone and um, that aspect of the book. So um, I think it, it's a success, at least on that level. Good. Thanks. You know, I, it's interesting to hear that you say you're you're targeting kind of a hybrid audience here, not either or, you know, layperson or scholar, but attempting to do both. And I noticed that. It seemed like it's occupying or using a hybrid genre. There's the harmonization aspects. There's narratival aspects. Um, you know, if you were to amplify some of the, the gospel accounts and describe them in a narrative form, you find some of that in there. There's more traditional commentary. There's expository and sermonic sections. And there's some theological discussion. So, I mean, was this all obviously intentional to try to meet a broader group and be a helpful resource to to all people? Yeah, I you know, I, I'm thinking of a comment that C.S. Lewis once made that he writes the books that he wants to read. And right. that's, that's pretty much motivated every project that I've been involved with. Um, you know, going back to working on John Owen on Sin and Temptation. I mean, the, the genesis for that was that I wanted something that was a reliable text, but that was more typographically accessible and understandable than the, the 19th century versions that we currently have. And I think something similar with the final days of Jesus, I, I wanted to see, um, you know, what it looked like to lay out the whole week because if you just stop and think, okay, what actually happened on Wednesday? Most of us, I mean, we, we know the last few days, but the, the beginning days of that final week, it's like Palm Sunday is fairly clear, and then Monday, Thursday, Good Friday is fairly clear, and Easter Sunday. But the other gaps in the story, like what, what actually happened? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of text in the Bible about what's happening during those other days. So I wanted to read something that, that did feel like it puts you there. There's limits to that. I mean, you can you can go overboard on the narratival uh, genre and start adding all sorts of dialogue and characterization. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. But if we know that Jerusalem in the springtime is cool, you can add that. Uh, if if you know that the, the Pharisees are feeling threatened, not only in terms of their religion, but socially and uh, politically, I mean, you can you can draw out some of the things that are latent in the text, and so yeah, we we wanted it wasn't so much that we wanted to reach a certain audience, but we wanted to tell the story in such a way that, as you guys helpfully put it, it, it pulls in the theology, it pulls in the fact that this is a story. This isn't the the original gospels weren't written as a technical commentary; they were written as narratives. Um, and it's designed for our edification, for the building up of our faith, for our instruction. So by mixing in theology, historical background, narrative, uh, practical application, um, we, we really tried to do all of that because that's the book ultimately we wanted to read. And if other people are like that and want to read that kind of book, then that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a win-win. Yeah. Um, one early on in the book, really toward the beginning, where you're kind of laying the foundation not only for the book but um, a helpful approach to the Gospels, you describe your desire for this particular book that you want it to aid people in reform or informed worship. 
I had a slip of the tongue there. I almost said reformed worship. So you see, you see where I end up here. Yeah, you know, reformed worship is informed worship. Yes, but but um, how do you see this, or could you expand on that idea of how this book might help in informed worship? We're so tempted, especially I'm probably more in broader evangelicalism than in the reformed world proper. Although it's a temptation for the human heart, uh, for all of us, no matter what tradition we're in. For worship to be something that uh, is is primarily dominated by feelings, and uh, you know, I'm I'm influenced by Edwards and religious affections, and believe that the affections are are really crucial. So this isn't a downplaying of of the affections, but but it's easy for us just to get caught up in a moment and and feel like. We're, we're being drawn closer to God when it may just be the music and it may just be how we're feeling at that, that point in time. And so our worship always needs to be informed by who God really is and what God has really done. And if it's true that um, we are transformed by beholding the glory of Christ, as Paul says in Second Corinthians, then the more that we see of him as he really is, uh, the better our worship will be, the more informed our worship will be, and the more ultimately affectionate our worship will be. Uh, so if that's true, that we're transformed by seeing Christ, um, the Lord may be pleased to use a book like this to help us in true worship, because as we talked about earlier, when you're reading through this, you're not just reading the commentary of men but you're seeing Christ himself in the pages of Scripture. And so we hope that it will be helpful in that way. As, as people see him and, and watch him walk through this final week and watch him uh, live a life of perfect right, righteousness for the glory of God, and as we behold that, I think we'll become more like him and be enabled to worship him ultimately, in spirit and in truth. Amen to that. That's excellent. Yeah, I think the same point applies to, um, you know, how we read Scripture that's obviously connected to what you just said. And um, just to take one example, um, tying in the point that you just made to the, to the previous point that you made with the last question, um, one example that struck me for whatever reason was uh, you guys include when Pilate is um, kind of going back and forth between crucifying Jesus and giving the crowd an, an out with Barabbas and, and that, that um, aspect of the narrative, uh, one of the little facts that, that you guys include is that uh, the Jews were outside, that they, they couldn't uh, come in um, because of, uh, you know, considerations with a uh, covered Gentile uh, structure. And so um, it just... For me, when I was reading through, um, again, the narrative, it little details like that just put you inside the story and bring the text of Scripture and, and obviously the story um, just alive a little bit more. And I also thought, it may be counterintuitive, that, that the graphs and charts do the same thing. It just fleshes out a little bit of uh, the story. Um, can you talk a little bit about... Um, what is, was that a difficult thing to do? I mean, even from a publishing standpoint, uh, is that more costly? Or how, how did you think about including something that's just kind of non-textual in a certain sense? Yeah. Well, for me, that's an important value. I know you can't do it in every book, and not every book lends itself to it. Mm -hmm. But I, I like to see things visually. Um, so 
an obvious example would be the, the illustrations. Even for me, something like charts, um, you know, they sort of provide information at a snapshot and can help sometimes uh, activate certain parts of our brain, certain ways of seeing that we might not see it just in a prose format. So it does add cost to the book uh, to do. Um, but it was something I think that as Crossway was looking at, they agreed, yeah, that would really be a helpful element. Um, you know, one of the, one of our audiences for this, we hope that, that some families may decide that it would be a helpful tool in this 40 days of Lent. What do you do during Lent? Um, you may want to work through a book like this and having that visual element, I think really does help. Now these illustrations that we included, we have, um, a picture of the the Temple Mount and uh, the temple itself and picture of Golgotha and a picture of what a first century tomb would have looked like. Those came uh, ultimately from the study Bible and aged a a partnership. Malting's partnership is a a architectural uh, design firm in the UK that specializes in doing uh, things like travel guides and uh, things for National Geographic where they uh, get instructions and then do very precise reconstructions. So we worked with one of the best uh, archaeological, architectural uh, experts on Jerusalem uh, working in the world today. And uh, he'd never worked with this design firm, but the, sort of a collaboration. And I think we're, we were able to produce something you know, whether it's exactly photographically similar or identical to what it would look like if you were looking at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, uh, we can never know that for sure. But I think we got about as close as we can get at this point in time. So for me, that sort of thing is just, it's helpful. It's wonderful to read it. But, you know, the original audience reading it, you didn't need to tell them what any of the geography looked like or what Golgotha looked like, because they knew. And so for us to sort of peer into it and to see, uh, you know, the the landscape and and where Jesus would have walked from, um, you know, Garden of Gethsemane to uh, Pontius Pilate's headquarters to where Herod was staying in the, the high priest's house, to be able to visualize that, I think all of that helps to transport us back there as much as we can uh, given our limitations of a distance of 2,000 years. Yeah. I've been very helped by the charts and especially the illustrations, even the illustration of the Last Supper and where the people sat and how they sat. And it just helps me to understand or to visualize the text in a special way. Uh, it's really insightful, and it lends itself to uh, opening up a better understanding and helping us to see Jesus uh, more clearly not that that's not in the text, but you're expanding upon what is in the text in a way that's that's helpful for many of us. I think that what we're writing about here, there's a paradoxical nature to it in that, uh, you know, Jared pointed out a couple things he'd never seen before. And, mm-hmm. and I find with the book that <laughs> I'm seeing new things all the time that you just kind of glide over and there's so much to see in the actual text. So this is a very well-worn topic in one sense. Um, but in another sense, we've we've kind of skimmed over it. And there's a lot of things that if you stop and ask yourself, do I really know how they were seated during the Lord's Supper? Um, 
we have other cultural artifacts that inform us and sometimes misinform us. So mm. a lot of times we probably shut our eyes and think about the Lord's Supper and the first image that might come into our, our minds is the Da Vinci piece. Yes. You know, right. where they're sitting at a table and they're all kind of sitting in a row. And so that's one of the things that you've almost got to fight against in reading the story of Fresh is to strip away some of those things, you know, from the Renaissance that uh, may be beautiful but may not be actually very accurate. So that's a, another part of the the illustrative aspects of the book is trying to get back as much as we can to the original. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, getting back to the original, of course, that's highly dependent upon the way that you treat the text. And you have a very refreshing and conservative and God-honoring approach to treating the Bible. But that's not always a given when we see people uh, doing biblical interpretation, especially when they approach the Gospels. There's so many other approaches. There's a critical approach, liberal approaches. What was the nature of your approach, and and how do you think that serves your main ends uh, for this book? Yeah, one thing that we do in the introduction to the book, we we don't spend an enormous amount of time here, but we try to just give some some pointers, some framework for readers to think about how to actually read the Gospels. You know, why are there four Gospels? Why why didn't uh, God just inspire a book like <laughs> The Final Days of Jesus? One <laughs> right, with pictures and graphs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um you know, I think that's an area where there's a gap between, you know, the best of evangelical scholarship that's happening in the academy and sort of average person in the pew who just it hasn't trickled down entirely. So we wanted to give some some pointers that we are coming to the text, not naively, but with a posture of trust and um you know, not not lording it over the text as if the text is somehow uh, suspicious or it's guilty until we prove it innocent. But we take the text as given to us, and we think there are good historical reasons for believing that. We think there are good theological reasons for reading that. And we try to show throughout the book, and there's certain areas where it's not entirely clear how two things fit together. I mean, nobody can claim perfect inerrancy for all of the different appearances of the women. But we try to show that these these aren't really contradictions. That the fact that we have four different gospel accounts actually points to its credibility and its integrity. If you had just uh, a one-volume Final Days of Jesus with uh, no variety, no uh, complementary aspects to it, uh, you, you'd probably do the same sort of thing that we do if we hear just one witness in a trial, you wonder if that person's telling the full story. And the, the fact that you're getting four different witnesses telling the same story, but from angles for different audiences, uh, with highlighting different theological themes actually points to its credibility. So we hope this isn't a book on how to read the Gospels, but we hope that that would be a secondary effect of our book that people would see what responsible evangelical scholarship looks like. It doesn't mean being like the proverbial ostrich and burying your head in the sand. Um, It doesn't mean pretending that there's no difficulties. But it does mean that there's a difference if you come to the text, not as judge over it, but as one who wants to learn from it and to be shaped by it and to be in submission under it. Uh, we're, We're hoping to model that sort of thing in the book as 
as readers can sort of look over our shoulders and see how we read the Gospels. I think that's so helpful. I was going to ask if there was a strategy for handling some of the harmonization issues among the gospel accounts. And uh, maybe one way of asking that is, did you and Dr. Kostenberger have to have any lengthy conversations about any particular passages that maybe don't initially lend itself to easy harmonization? And does that relate to what you mentioned where you say that there are two ways to read the gospels, vertical and horizontal. Are those things connected yeah, so the the first part of your question, we really didn't have uh, super long, lengthy conversations about the different harmonization issues. You know, he would draft the primary commentary, and then I would look at it and offer feedback and maybe offer some other suggestions. And I, I think that points to the genre difference between what we've done in our book versus, say, writing a commentary, right. or with a commentary you've got you've got to ultimately land on a solution and you've got to deal with all of the possibilities that have been put forth. And for our audience and for our purposes, we tried to give a reasonable explanation without saying this is definitively how this is handled. In other words, there may be other solutions, other ways of coming at certain things um, that are, that are equally as plausible. So that, a major thing, we just wanted to make sure that we offered some hints of how how this has been handled and, and the best way forward on it. Um, and at the end of the day, the, the harmonization thing can be uh, exaggerated a little bit because it's one thing we like to focus on and talk about. But what's really remarkable is all of the continuity between all four accounts, that they really do fit together remarkably well which I think if somebody reads this book cover to cover, that that idea will be uh, reinforced. And Jared, you're going to have to remind me of your second question. Uh, you mentioned that um, there are a couple ways to read the Gospels in one sense. There's the vertical yeah. and the horizontal. Is that is that wrapped up in what we're talking about? Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, the Lord did inspire four different accounts, and we can read through them uh, you know, vertically, like like in a scroll, from from the top to the bottom, and then you start with the next one. You go from the top to the bottom. That's reading the text vertically. It's reading that counts on their own. And there's there's something crucial about that. If if you only do the horizontal approach with sideways, you know, like lining up the four scrolls next to each other, um, you can see the different emphases that the four gospel writers want to bring out. But if you only read it that way, you would lose some of the distinctiveness of each one. So I think I think the gospel should be read as they were originally designed vertically, but they're also to be read uh, historically and theologically by putting them side by side and showing how the four mutually interpret and complement each other uh, we, we think both ways of reading Scripture are important. Mm-hmm. That's a canonical yeah. approach, really, um, not only with the other Gospels, but with all of God's Scripture, with, with the whole counsel of God. It's, it does mutually interpret itself and uh, enlighten us in a variety of ways. Yep, that's right. Mm. Commentary, the best commentary ultimately on Scripture is Scripture. And, uh, you know, that can sound like kind of a throwaway line or a truism, but it really is profoundly important that letting Scripture interpret Scripture is really a key reformational principle. Yeah, yeah. 
We we talked a little bit about um, the narrative uh, of this book because it does have a chronological flow. Was there a particular narrative tone or style that you were going for? There, there would I'm sure a lot of options um, to go with. You know, as you're as you're presenting something like a story. Um, so, it, was there something particular that you were going for? Yeah, I think the very fact of putting it into the the sort of Sunday through Sunday approach puts a a narratival framework at least in there. And then we wanted to try to include, uh, you know, just, just helpful narratival markers to let people know, um, you know, what's coming next. So it's not going to read entirely like a novel. I don't want to set somebody's expectations, um, set the expectations too high. Um, but, you know, as as we open the book, we, we talk about Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And, you know, we make the observation there that perhaps up until this point, you know, April of 33, A.D. 33, maybe Jesus could have gone a different route. You know, maybe it didn't have to end this way. But by entering into Jerusalem in this way, the writing is now on the wall. I mean, he's he's sort of doing everything he can to bring this conflict, this uh, that's that's been bubbling up, to bring it ultimately to a head. And so, just as you you read it as a story, as you put yourself there as one of the characters, and you you see him cursing the fig tree, and you see him cleansing the temple, and you see the camera swing over to the the scribes and the Pharisees plotting behind the scenes to. Uh, ultimately bring Jesus to an end. I, I We hope that it will feel like you're there to some degree walking with Jesus through these final days of his life. Mm-hmm. Now, the book is is structured, you know, according to the week, but uh, it's heavily weighted toward um, the end, uh, toward Wednesday through Sunday. And uh, all of Scripture points to the resurrection of our Lord, and that's that's the climactic moment. You know, Paul says in first. Uh, Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, you know, this is a matter of first importance that Christ died and also that he was raised for our justification and for our whole life, for everything. Uh, we've been talking about that a lot. And and this is a, just a wonderful way, I think, to structure the book. But can you speak about this transition point uh, from the early events of the Passion Week to the later events and how this book climactically moves uh, just like scripture, toward uh, that that great moment when we see our risen Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And you know, going back to something we said earlier, when we think about Jesus's final days, we tend to think about Thursday, which is when he celebrated his last supper with his disciples, and then that that night, probably after midnight, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane with them, and uh, he is arrested, and then the trials that take place on Friday, and the, the crucifixion um, that happens that day, and then, then on to, to Easter Sunday. But like I said earlier, it gets fuzzier the earlier in the week we go. So the reason we, we divided up the book between uh, Sunday through Tuesday, and then you know, Thursday through Sunday, Easter Sunday, was because there seems to be a sort of a natural break in the in the narrative in that way. Um, Wednesday, in between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, is sort of the narrative hinge there. Nothing 
much seems to happen with Jesus um, on Wednesday in terms of his own actions. But that's when the plot to kill Jesus, to trap him, to have him arrested, to put him on trial, that's when the plot um, is solidified by Jesus' enemies. But then Sunday through Tuesday is really the, the setup to that in which Jesus basically pushes the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders toward that conclusion. So, you know, he makes his triumphal entry, uh, sort of his his royal coronation. There's there's echoes there of, of Solomon entering into Jerusalem. Uh, as, as he goes into the city, as he's acclaimed by the people, the, the acclamation is really based on a misunderstanding, but nevertheless, he's he's coming in as as the king of Jerusalem, and he's posing a profound threat, not just to the religious leaders, but to the political leaders as well. So so every aspect of Jerusalem life, from uh, their, their physical safety to their religious convictions, to political stability, to their financial welfare, Jesus represents a threat to all of that. And then as he goes about these kind of two major things, on Monday and Tuesday, he's he's cursing the fig tree. He's using that as a parable of Israel, and then he's cleansing the temple, which you know it's it's designed to be a house of prayer. It's to be his his father's house, and it's being used for ungodly commerce and, and mistreatment of people. Again, he's bringing that that conflict. He, he's making it as high as he can, and so. There's really two parts of the week. There's those early days with the triumphal entry and then his actions coming out of those on Monday, Tuesday. There's Wednesday where the plot gets solidified. And then there's Thursday and Friday where the the, the plot gets put into full effect and Jesus is arrested, put on trial, multiple trials, and ultimately crucified. Wonderful. Well, I should say, this is a, an excellent book and, and a very helpful one at that. I'm reading it myself, have read most of it, and I'm working through it again. And I would like to work through it with my family this season. But as you mentioned early on, uh, it's something that we can use uh, throughout the year. Uh, Justin, we want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you guys and really enjoy your program and believe in what you guys are doing. And so it's a real honor to join you and uh, wish the program all the best. Mm, thank you. It's our pleasure. We do want to point people to various websites. Well, I should remind you, of course, uh, the book here, The Final Days of Jesus, The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. It's published by Crossway, co-authored by Justin Taylor and Andreas J. Kustenberger. Uh, you can also find Justin online at thegospelcoalition.org slash blogs slash Justin Taylor. And visit Crossway online too, crossway.org, and a lot of their books are available. All their books are available in a variety of places. We particularly would like you to visit WTSbooks.com and we'll just hint at potential future deals on some very uh, important books that you'd like to know about. So WTSbooks.com is a place to be. We're online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as how to get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. and We want to thank everybody for listening and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.